Friends, our scripture this morning comes to us from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Listen now for a word from God. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I've rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I'll send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I've provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord doesn't see as mortals see. They look on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made all seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we won't sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now, David was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him from that day forward. And then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Good and loving God, thank you for your word. Thank you for time set aside to dwell on it. God, as always, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would dip into our hearts and lend us your wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to see how this goes this morning, all right? I got, I got two stories that involve nudity, and I, I promise they're safe, but I just want to put that out there. We're going to tell two stories that involve nudity, and I, I think they'll make the point that I want them to make. I have a friend who is a, um, he's a peacemaker, he's an activist, he, he's an author, 
he's, he's a wonderful storyteller. Uh, he's a mentor of mine. And he, he tells this story about one of his friends named Mike. His name's Mike Riddell. You can look him up. He's a novelist. He was a poet. He was also a Baptist minister in New Zealand, in Auckland, I believe. And Mike was, um, well, he was the kind of person that you might say got into a lot of good trouble. And, and he, he did so on behalf of the poor and the marginalized and really uh, lived out his call to take the Gospels to the ends of the earth in really creative, unique ways. But my friend tells this story about Mike when Mike was living in Auckland as a pastor. And uh, Mike found out that the city of Auckland was a little frustrated by this housing development that was set aside for low-income people. And they felt like, you know, these low-income people had let the place, you know, um, go into disrepair. And they sort of thought that, you know, this, this whole building was just an eyesore for the community. It was sort of community blight that needed to be taken care of. And so there was this resolution that was coming forward to the city council. And, and you'll have to forgive me because I'm not up to date on New Zealand politics or parliamentary procedure. But the equivalent of their city council was going to vote on this resolution to quote unquote redevelop this low income housing unit. And it was going to displace, you know, something like 500 people. And what they were going to do is basically just tear down the building and move these people out and send them somewhere else. Maybe get them a bus ticket and send them away so someone else has to deal with them. And Mike found out about this and he started to generate some ideas. He started to protest. He started to resist. He started to pull people in. He started to, you know, really make this movement to say, hey, you can't just remove these people like that. They're human beings. You need to dignify them. There's got to be a more creative solution than just tearing it down and redeveloping it and turning it into luxury condos or, you know, whatever's going to sell and help the economy. Well, Mike's efforts had really come to the point where it looked like they were going to fail. All the work that he had put in, all the people that he had pulled in, everything that he had done just was not working, and, and it was going to go before the city council. They're going to vote on this resolution, and so Mike showed up to be at that sort of historic vote, and he got his public comment, however long he got, two or three minutes, and when he got to the mic, he said, you know, we, we've been talking about this for months and years, and, and you know what you're doing. You know what you're doing to these people, and you're not willing to admit it. You're not willing to see it because you're so stuck in your minds. And you think that all this logic, all this reason that you're applying to this situation is going to pay off for you in the end. And so the only way that I know, Mike says, to this crowd of city council members, the only way I know how to wake you up is to show you exactly what you're doing to these people, leaving them without dignity and completely naked. And Mike, puts the microphone down, and he proceeds to take off all of his clothes until he's just naked in front of these city council members and just looking at them. And it's not just the city council members, right? Like, it's all the friends that he brought in to protest. It's all of the people that stood behind him. It's, it, it's maybe some of his congregants who are seeing him naked 
and he's humiliating himself on behalf of the poor and the marginalized to say to these people in power, hey, you better wake up. And if you don't, that's on you, but you're never, ever going to forget this moment. And I don't think they did. You know, we're all, I think, on some level looking for solutions to some of the big problems that we face, whether it's in our city, whether it's in our state, whether it's in our country, whether it's in our world. We want issues to be solved like poverty, like structural racism, like the climate crisis, like gun violence. Don't we? I mean, is, is anyone against that? I mean, we, we want solutions to these issues, but so often we lack the creativity, we lack the imagination to really, really engage with them. We often rely on old ways of doing things or just the way we've always done things, or we, we often rely on just ignoring it pushing it off on someone else, bussing people away so that another city government has to deal with them and not us. It's almost the American way. I, like, I, I think this is a huge problem. We, just, we don't want to deal with the things that are in front of us. We want someone else to take responsibility. And so you don't want to step up and deal with the thing, so why don't you just pass it to them and they'll do it. But then their thing is, I don't really want to deal with it. I don't have time. I'll send it down the line and down the line until pretty soon we have a crisis. And we have no imagination. And we've really got <laughs> no energy to deal with those things. But we're still searching. We still want a solution. And I think the question is often for us, how do we arrive there? How do we arrive there? Samuel, the prophet from our story this morning, has a pretty big problem on his hands. And it's, it really should not even be his problem to deal with, but it just sort of is. Samuel has this king named Saul that's sort of gone rogue and violent, and he's just out of control, and he knows that, Samuel knows that Saul really should not be king, is not fit to be king, and is actually causing more problems than he is solving. And in fact, you know, Samuel didn't even want the people to have a king. The people came to Samuel one day and said, hey, Samuel, we want a king. And Samuel said, oh, I don't think you do want a king. And the people said right back, no, we definitely want a king. And Samuel said, I, I really don't think you want a king. And the people said, no, give us a king. And Samuel said, well, wait. You know that if you get a king, he's going to tax you, right? And it's, this sort of caused a pause with the people. They're like, oh, taxes. Taxes, taxes, taxes. No, we want a king, even if he taxes us. Samuel says, oh, are you sure? You know, he's not just going to tax you, but he's going to take some of your livestock. He's going to take some of your crops. And they're like, oh, man, taxes, and he's going to take some of our commodities. Um... No, we still want a 
king. Samuel says, well, he's not going to stop at the, the, the taxes and, and, and your livestock. He's going to take your daughters to live in his palace. He's going to take your men when he needs to fight wars. He's going to take your uncles, your brothers. He's going to decimate your families. He's going to take your land. He is going to marginalize people. He is going to oppress and force them into labor to do the things that they don't want to do so that he can build all of the buildings and things of his ambitions. You sure you want that? And the people say, yeah, we, we want a king. And Samuel throws up his hands and says, okay, you'll get a king. Now, there's pretty good reason for the people to want a king. They're, they're sort of, to, to put it lightly, they're getting their butts kicked all the time. There are these nations that are invading. There are these empires coming in. There are these tribes that are coming in, and they're always warring and fighting, and the people feel like they don't have anyone to lead them into battle. They don't have anyone to really stand with them and to to really lead on their behalf, and so they want someone to lead them into war. They want someone to fight on their behalf. They want an advocate. They want someone to take them to the promised land that they've been searching for for so long. And even though they're there geographically, they don't really feel like they're there because there's so much conflict and there's so much war. So you might say that's a good reason. You know, when when these tribes and these nations, they invade, they have kings, and so they think, well, if they've got kings and they're doing well, maybe we get a king and it won't be so bad. And they get Saul, and, you know, Saul does get, he he has a few victories right away, and it's great, it's good, but then it it just kind of goes south. And Saul, he's not patient, he's not kind, he doesn't, he doesn't want to listen to the elders that are around him, he doesn't want to listen to the community, he just wants to do what he wants to do, and he's almost on this, like, murderous war path, and he's taking everything, and he's ruining lives, and he's hurting the people, and no one really knows what to do about it. And so where we come to the story today in 1 Samuel chapter 16 is Samuel is fed up with it because the people are fed up with it. And Samuel's sort of doubly fed up with it because he's sort of like, you know what, I, I mm, didn't I mention that this would happen? And you still ask for the king? But he also has the responsibility of, of trying to solve it because he is the mediator between the people in God, and he can't just shirk the responsibility and send it on down the line. He's got to do something. He has to step up, and so God says to him, hey, I've got a plan. Why don't you go to Bethlehem, and there is someone there that I'm going to appoint to be king, and Samuel doesn't really like this idea either. As he says, he's like, okay, well, God, if, if I do this and Saul finds out about it, he's obviously going to kill me, which I think is, is, is a creative way of saying, God, isn't there an easier way to replace the king? Why don't we depose the king, create a little coup, and take him out first, and then we can go appoint one. In that way, there's not any danger for anyone involved. And this is in Samuel's bones. If you think a prophet wouldn't do that, you should read 1 Samuel chapter 15, and it ends with Samuel really showing uh, how violent he can be and perhaps how violent he wants to be. And often, this is, this is what people do, especially people in power, you know, you resort to a form of violence, no matter what position you're in, when you get so fed up with things that you just want change. 
You just want the thing to change. You just want it to go away. And so the quickest way to do that is often quick, reactive violence. And I think that this is what Samuel really, really wants. And God says, no, 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 no. There's a different way. Go to Bethlehem. Take you a little calf and tell him you're going down there to make a sacrifice to God. And in that way, I'll show you where the king is. So Samuel does what God says, and he shows up into the city. And, and you can see the people's reaction to Samuel and how dangerous he might be when they say to him, the elders come out and they say, have you come here peaceably? Or dot, dot, dot. And he says, peaceably. I've come to make a sacrifice. And so he finds Jesse, and he, he finds Jesse's sons, and uh, they go to the temple. They wash themselves first. They're ritually clean. They approach the altar. And then Jesse starts presenting his seven sons. And the first one comes out, and, and we sort of get a picture of Samuel's reaction. The first one comes out. His name's Eliab, and he's, he's tall like Saul. And he's strong like Saul. And he, lo he looks like a king might look in these people's minds. And Samuel says to himself, oh, it looks like the Lord's anointed is standing before me now. And God whispers in Samuel's ear, no, I haven't chosen that one. And then he says to Samuel, he says, don't look on his outward appearance. Don't look on his stature. Don't look at how strong he is. Don't look at the things that you saw in Saul that said, you know, that looks like a king. Don't look at, throw all of that out. That's what mortals do. That's what humans do. God looks on the heart. And so the second son passes by and looks almost like his older brother. And Samuel says again, surely this is the one. And God says, nope, not that one. And then the third one, and then the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, until all the sons have gone. And God's saying, I haven't chosen any of these. And all of them are standing there looking like they might be a king. And God's saying no. And, and Samuel's like, oh, great. What's, <laughs> what's going on here? And he looks at Jesse and he asks what might be kind of an absurd question. It's like, are you, did you bring all of your sons here? Did you forget anybody? And Jesse, in a moment of parental humility, I'm sure, is like, oh, yeah, well, I guess there is one more son that I have. Forgot about him. Uh, but he's really, really young and small, and I, he's kind of weird. Like, I, I don't know. He's out watching the sheep, and mm, you probably don't want him, Samuel. Samuel says, bring him. Bring him. And so David shows up, and David is, he, he, he's young, he's short, he's ruddy, which I was told when I was young meant that he had a red complexion, which I always enjoyed, you know. <laughs> I'm not saying he was a ginger, I'm saying someone told me one time that he had a red complexion. <laughs> he shows up, he's short, he, he doesn't look like the other people look. I think that's what the writer is trying to tell us. He's got a different sort of hue to him, he, and, and he is weird. He comes carrying a lyre. He writes poems when he's sitting in the field alone. He probably talks to his sheep. He likes to sing songs randomly. I mean, he's different. He doesn't look like a king. He doesn't act like a king. 
He's not strong like a king. In fact, if you read ahead a little bit, you, you find out he doesn't even fit in a normal soldier's um, armor. When he goes out to fight Goliath, he's young, he's small, he's innocent in so many ways. And God says to Samuel, that's the one. That weirdo that writes poems and sings songs and watches sheep all day. And it's not because he's tall. It's not because he has all of this wisdom. It's, it's whatever God sees inside of David's heart, that kind of innocence, that kind of wonder, that curiosity, the, the, the heart that is prone to breaking out in song. The heart that is prone to sort of maybe staring off for a long time. This is what I do when I'm writing poems. I just sort of stare off for a while and waiting for the words to come to you. This is the one that God wants to sit on the throne because all the other nations, including the nation of Israel at this time, have a king that looks exactly what the people think a king should look like and so behaves like all the other kings behave with violence, with ego, no compassion, no empathy. And so the result is the same over and over and over. It's just war after war after war. And I think what God is trying to do, and in many ways it's unsuccessful with David if you read the whole story, he's trying to break that cycle. God wants the people to get out of that, to sort of not trust their eyes for just a moment, to get out of their mind in a way and dip into their heart to see something different. God wants to break the pattern, to disrupt the cycle so that something new can emerge. After Mike took off all of his clothes and got naked before all of his peers in the city council, I'm pretty sure he was arrested and taken out for indecent exposure and any other charges that were there, but the, the vote took place after Mike was removed, and actually, the city council turned it down. Mike had made his point. And it's so curious that he doesn't do it by throwing statistics at them. He didn't do it as a Baptist minister by throwing the Bible at them. He didn't do it with all these data points. He didn't do it by bringing in a guru and saying, look what this guru has to say about all these things that we can do. He didn't do it with a workshop. He surely did not appoint a committee to figure it out. He just took off his clothes. And it changed their hearts. And so what they did, instead of demolishing that giant low-income housing building that was a blight on the city and an eyesore and a distraction from all these things, what they did instead was they set up a housing trust, and that housing trust is still active today. And they started putting money into it, and they started diverting resources into it, and pretty soon it grew, and now they have, I believe, homed or at least helped find housing for over a thousand people because someone was willing to take off their clothes. You know, my friend that 
uh, t tells me that story, says that it, it inspired him to sort of think openly and creatively, and, and it got him out of kind of a sticky situation one time. He said he, he had a friend that came over to his house. His friend's name's Dave, we'll call him. And Dave ha had suffered a great tragedy. And in fact, it's, it's, it's so great and it's so personal. I, I, I do not have permission to share with you what happened, but I'd suffice it to say, Dave had all of the rights and the reasons to be murderously angry. And he was. And he came over to see my friend because he knew my friend was sort of this calming, zen-like presence. And he had some peacemaking skills, and so he comes over to talk to him, and when he walks in the house, you can just sort of feel his rage, the way my friend tells the story. And he, he says to him, he says, Dave, would you like a glass of wine? And Dave says, yes. And so my friend pours him a glass of wine, and Dave throws it back and then asks for another right away. And my friend fills it up, and he throws that back, and then he asks for another, and he fills it up. And my friend says he's holding this glass of wine, and you can see the way his hand is gripping it, and it looks like the glass is just about to burst from all of this anger pulsing through Dave. And my friend says to Dave, Dave, would you like to sit down? And Dave says, no. My friend says, Dave, would you like to talk? And, and Dave says, no. And my, my friend's beginning to get scared because he's, he doesn't know what's about to happen. And he can't predict it. And Dave's not very responsive. He's not acting like himself. And so the story of Mike comes flying into my friend's head, and he just asks Dave, he says, Dave, would it help if I took off my clothes? And, and Dave, Dave is able to get out of that cycle of anger that he's looping in. And he's able to have this almost like holy pause and he looks up from his wine glass and his feet and he stares at my friend and he gives just a little bit of a smirk. And he says, yes. So my friend takes off all of his clothes. <laughs> and the way, the way he tells it, he's like, I, I didn't expect him to say anything. I was just, I just thought of that story. And, and so my friend takes off all of his clothes and then he says to Dave, he says, Dave, does that make you feel better? And Dave says, yeah. And he says, Dave, would you mind if we went outside and had a talk? And Dave says, yeah. And so they went outside. And for like three or four hours, my friend sat naked in a rocking chair, trying to calm his friend Dave down from this great tragedy he had experienced. The moral of all of this is not that we should just get naked when things aren't going our way or we're scared, okay? Please hear me. But I do think there's something to be said about breaking out of these patterns and these cycles, these forms of logic that we often employ and rely on so much. We're so anchored to data. We're so anchored to statistics. We're so anchored to our traditions and the ways that, that we, we think we need to do things or, or the way things should be that we often distract ourselves from a bigger imagination, a greater creativity that might provide some solutions to some of the issues that we see, but we are so narrow-minded, we often block it out. The church is great at this, isn't it? I saw a meme the other day, and this, this one hurt me too, but it, it said, uh, you know, if the 1950s ever come back to America, boy, the church will be ready. And I, I was like, oh. 
Oh, <laughs> that, one, <laughs> that one hurts. That one hurts. There's actually a young couple here. This story's just kind of flying into my mind. There's a young couple here that asked to speak with me after a service one time. And, um, I, and I was thrilled and I was excited, you know, because like all of you that have been here a long time, it's like it, it, when you see young people, and, and those of you that are young with me, just know this is how we think. It's like when they come, it's like, oh, yes, we're doing something right. <laughs> this is good. Oh, my gosh, I hope they don't leave. Did I say something wrong? Should I have said that? that you know, you start to, it, it's almost like uh, when you're, you're young and you're single and you're, you're maybe looking for a partner. There's this nervousness. There's excitement. And so they asked me to speak to them, and I was like, yes, this is good. We're doing great things. And they said, gosh, we love your mission. We love your values. We love everything that you're doing. We love the people. They're so warm, and they're so welcoming. And they said, but you know, it feels like in all of the programming, there's a whole lot of head going on. There's a lot of thinking. Even in your sermons, Pastor, there's a, there's a lot of thinking. There's a lot of cerebral activity, and we're just... Wondering, where's the heart? Ooh. I'm, feel, I'm feeling that right now, even as I say it. And actually, what I said to them was, I'll be thinking about that for a long time, <laughs> which is exactly what a Presbyterian pastor would say, and exactly not the point of what they're asking. What I said to them was, I don't know. I don't know. But I feel it. And I know the question is right and trying to point me somewhere. Friends, if we're really going to engage with some of these issues, systemic racism, structural poverty, if we're really going to revitalize this congregation, if we're really going to begin to engage with the climate crisis, if we're really going to start to dig in on some of these issues that we are facing, we're going to have to break the cycle. We're going to have to lose our minds in a way and fall into our hearts. My challenge for you this week, do you think about the ways that you're stuck in your head the ways you rely too much on your reasoning and your logic and the things that you see around you. And I would invite you to consider, how might I tap into my heart? What might it be speaking to me? And how might that show us a new way forward? Let's pray. Good and loving God, Thank you for today. Thank you for the sunshine. And God, thank you for those that are willing to take off their clothes for the sake of justice and righteousness. So God, I pray that you would make us a people who lose their minds routinely and engage with the heart. In Jesus' name, amen.